0: Very quickly before we dive in, if you haven't already listened to part one, I recommend that you do that first. If you already have, awesome. Let's get into it. A Crime Most Queer is an LGBTQ true crime podcast based in Johannesburg, South Africa, intended for adult audiences and may contain graphic or disturbing content, including detailed descriptions of violence, physical or sexual assault, injuries to victims, and foul language. If you feel this may trigger you at all, please reconsider listening. If you need to talk to someone, please see our show notes for the contact numbers of crisis helplines around South Africa. Welcome to Crime is Queer. I'm NJ Hawkeby. So, last time we got started on the upstairs lounge fire of 1973, and apparently the cliffhanger was a bit of a dick move. Sorry about that but I'm afraid you're not going to like me very much this time either. Unfortunately, there is way too much to get through for just one episode. But for those of you who are here for the gory details, you're in luck. Today's episode deals with the actual fire. For those of you who would prefer not to hear that part, there is a second graphic content warning coming up, and that's where you can safely stop the episode. Right, let's pick up where we left off the last time. For a moment, Roger considered going back upstairs and confirmed. Actually, no. Let's recap quickly. Last time, we spoke of an altercation that broke out between lounge regular... No, wait, we'll get to that in a bit. Let's jump back a couple of hours, because I kind of glossed over events that took place earlier in the evening. Roger Nunez was not the only one causing crabs at the upstairs lounge that evening. The year was 1973. The day was Sunday, June the 24th. The city was New Orleans, Louisiana, and the place. The Upstairs Lounge, a cosy venue on the edge of the French Quarter. It was the last day of Pride Weekend, commemorating the fourth anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, but true Pride celebrations hadn't made their way that far south yet. So, this was an ordinary Sunday at the Upstairs Lounge. The weekly bear bust was in full swing, and the place was packed to its 110-person capacity. Buddy Rasmussen was behind the bar, assisted by Rusty Quinton, and they were being run off their feet. Things weren't all entirely plain sailing, though. 18-year-old David DeBose had been proving himself a bit of a nuisance that night. The cheap booze had affected him, and not in a good way. When the beer bust ended at 7pm and prices returned to normal, people began to move off elsewhere, and David started going around the bar, gathering up abandoned beer mugs, his plan was to turn in the mugs at the bar and collect the 50 cent deposit levied on the glasses so that he could keep drinking. Buddy and Rusty quickly picked up on David's scheme and refused to hand over the cash. Naturally, this pissed David off and he went from nuisance to menace. As described by one of the people there that night, he began quote, pouring beer on the floor, kicking the customers, and being loud. End quote. Around the same time, the door opened and two hustlers, Mark Guidry and Roger Nunez, walked in. Both men had been there before and Roger in particular hadn't made a very good impression. Those who noticed Roger walk through the door didn't do much to hide their displeasure. Unfortunately for Mark, arriving with Roger got him tarred with the same brush. Roger ignored the snide comments that met his arrival and headed straight for the bathroom completely abandoning Mark at the door. Mark, not feeling overly welcome, decided to rather head over to Society Page, one of the other bars located in the Gay Triangle, and he left without even bothering to let Roger know. In the bathroom, Roger, who was already quite drunk, locked himself in one of the two toilet stalls and was passing comments of encouragement or harassment through the glory hole between the two stalls. Whatever the reason for this was is lost to history but the bathroom being down to just one lavatory cubicle, with Roger ensconced in the other, caused a queue to form. Enter David DeBose. Pushing his way through into the bathroom, ignoring the line of people waiting their turn, he began bashing on the door of the stall that Roger was in, demanding that he hurry up. Then David noticed Stephen DePlantis, a closeted serviceman stationed in Texas, standing at the basins. He walked over to him and proposed a blowjob. For financial compensation, of course. Stephen looked David up and down and flat out rejected him with the words, No, you're just trash. David persisted until Stephen eventually left the bathroom and went to report David's solicitation to Buddy. Police in the 60s and 70s didn't need much excuse to raid gay bars, and any suggestion of solicitation being allowed to go unchecked could draw unnecessary attention from law enforcement. As such, it was expressly prohibited and would mean immediate expulsion from the upstairs lounge. Meanwhile, Michael Scarborough had made it to the front of the bathroom queue and entered the unoccupied stall, only to be harassed by Roger through the hole in the stall partition. This didn't sit well with Michael. He finished up, washed his hands and headed to the bar to have a chat with Buddy about Roger. Buddy did not take kindly to the conduct of either David or Roger, but decided to deal with Roger first because that would resolve the bottleneck. Entering the bathroom with Hugh Cooley, the relief barback who was due to start his shift at 8pm, they hauled Roger out of the stall and told him to leave the patrons alone. Roger, furious at the reprimand, went searching for the person who had reported him to management and spotted Michael seated at a table over by the piano alongside Glenn Green, his boyfriend, and a group of their friends. Michael, the son of a brutish bail bondsman, had grown up having to stand up to his hulking father and was not one to shy away from conflict, unlike Glenn, who was the gentler of the couple. Roger flopped down to the table and began harassing the group of friends, paying special attention to Michael. Glenn tried to ignore Roger, but eventually Michael lost his shit completely and sprang to his feet his fist already in mid-flight. The punch connected Roger square on the jaw, breaking it, as it turned out, and the impact sent Roger tumbling backwards onto the floor. Nearby, Stephen DePlantis was chatting to Stuart Butler and his partner Alfred and turned to see what the commotion was all about. Like Roger's reasons for passing comments through the glory hole in the bathroom, what actually transpired next is lost to history, but there are these two accounts which are pretty similar. According to Michael, Roger glared at him and said, I'm going to burn you out. Stephen, on the other hand, heard Roger say, I'm going to burn this place to the ground. Whichever it was, it's worth noting that both Michael and Stephen heard the word burn. But he was headed in David's direction when he saw that shenanigans were afoot over by the piano. He immediately changed direction and hurried over, with Hugh hot on his heels. Buddy didn't tolerate brawling in his bar, and he had a choice to make. He could either throw Michael out for swinging the punch, or throw Roger out for instigating the fight. Ultimately, he decided that seeing as this was Roger's second strike for the night, he would be the one to go. Roger refused to leave of his own accord so between Buddy and Hugh they literally picked the man up and carried him out the door, with Roger screaming and spitting and kicking the whole way. Roger was then dragged down the stairs and out onto the street and told to be on his way. The two men returned upstairs to find David, defiant as ever, dancing with a beer mug in each hand, neither of which he had paid for. In one fluid movement, Buddy and Hugh each grabbed David by an arm and he too was hauled downstairs. On street level, he was told that due to the solicitation in the bathroom and now the theft of the beers, he was not welcome back. Ever. They turned to head back inside when David realized that he still had the beer mugs in his hands. He threw both of them at Buddy and Hugh and the mugs shattered in the foyer, covering the entrance in glass. Buddy looked down at the broken glass and asked Hugh to clean it up. As the men started up the stairs, they were passed by another regular, James Smith, a middle-aged man who clearly had a thing for crazy teenage rent boys. The last that buddy and Hugh saw of David was James approaching the teen. James and David then headed off back to James's place where he cooked David a meal, gave him a blowjob, paid him $10 for the privilege and then dropped him at the Golden Slipper on the opposite end of the French Quarter. Back at the bar, Michael returned to his conversation with Glenn and his friends. Stephen looked at his watch and realised that he needed to leave if he was to make it back to base in San Antonio by the next morning. He advised Stuart and Alfred to leave too. Something about the tone in which Roger had said the word burn unsettled him. Stuart was having far too much fun and was in no mood to leave, but Alfred was swayed by Stephen's warning and said he wanted to go. Either way Stephen had to be off so he kissed his friends goodbye and headed down to his car. On his way out of the main entrance he said goodbye to Hugh who was cleaning up the glass and said he would see him again next time. He had no idea there wouldn't be a next time. Alfred became insistent that he and Stuart leave and an argument ensued with Stuart accusing Alfred's paranoia of getting the better of him but the men ultimately left shortly after Stephen. And we're now more or less back where we left off. David Gary, affectionately known as Piano Dave, was seated at the piano, banging out show tunes and hits of the day, while Reginald Adams, known as Reggie, was trying to have a chat with a very drunk Adam Fontenot, Buddy's boyfriend. Reggie's partner, Regina, still hadn't returned from her quick walk home to get the checkbook ahead of dinner. Not far from Reggie and Adam, Francis Dufresne was on a first date with Eddie Warren, who was accompanied by his brother, James, and their mother, Inez. John Golding was chatting to a group of friends, including dentist Dr. Perry Waters. Over at the bar, James Hambrink was plying Robert van Langendonk, who may or may not have been James's red boy for the evening, with alcohol. This was Robert's first time at the lounge, and it would be a night he'd never forget. A short while earlier, Radio personality Rod Wagner had dropped off his boyfriend, rising entertainment star Bud Machi, at the lounge. Rod didn't go to the lounge because he thought it to be a bit of a dive in the wrong part of town. But Bud, who had recently landed a recording contract under the name Buddy Stevens, had agreed to relieve Piano Dave on the keys. Behind the bar, Buddy returned to serving drinks to the crowd. Hugh had also returned from cleaning up the entrance and decided to get behind the bar and begin his shift early, seeing as he had pretty much already started. At the end of the bar, closest to the door, Luther Boggs was sitting with his friend, and sometimes beard, Gene Gosnell. He was usually busy on Sunday nights. Between the weekly beer bust and the after-service social gathering of the New Orleans chapter of the MCC, or Metropolitan Community Church, the place did a brisk trade. But Buddy had been doing this shit for years. He could handle it. Meanwhile, down on street level, Roger Nunez had returned and stood in front of the entrance to the upstairs lounge, glaring up the stairway leading to the heavy fire door. In his hand, he held a brown paper bag. And with that, we're all caught up. Consider this your second graphic content warning. We are diving straight into the action. I'm about to describe a truly horrific scene and the gruesome ways some of the victims died. But as you will discover, as we get further and further into the story, to sugarcoat it would be an insult to the memory of the people who were lost. To gloss over the details of what happened that night would make me no better than the New Orleans media of 1973. Let's do this. For a moment, Roger considered going back upstairs and confronting that arsehole who had taken a swing at him and gotten him thrown out. That Michael prick. But his jaw ached, and he suspected that getting into full-on fisticuffs probably wouldn't end well, not for him anyway. And he didn't feel like having his ass handed to him a second time in one night. But he'd show them. He'd show them all. From the paper bag, he removed the lighter for he had just purchased at Walgreens, broke the seal, and sprayed a jet of liquid onto the lower steps. He then struck a match and tossed it onto the saturated carpet, covering the wooden stairs. The ignition was immediate, but he wasn't prepared for the intensity of said ignition. Flames erupted into the air, and the blast of heat that struck him made it feel like his very breath was on fire the drapery covering the walls began to waft in the rapidly heating air as the updraft drew colder air in from the street. Then a corner of the material caught a light and Roger realised shit was going pear-shaped at lightning speed. He needed to get out of there in a hurry. He dropped the tin and ran off down the street. It's not known whether it was Roger or some other passerby who rang the buzzer to alert the people inside of the fire. Or if the intense heat caused the wiring to malfunction. But when Luther opened the fire door, the sudden abundance of fresh air sealed the fate of the upstairs lounge. The fireball that burst through the doorway guaranteed one thing and one thing only Inferno. Laughter and revelry instantly turned to screaming and terror. As far as most of the customers in the bar knew, that stairwell was the only way out of the building, besides the windows overlooking the roadway below, but they soon realised that the safety bars were too close together to allow for anyone other than the smallest among them to squeeze through, and even some of those people needed a forceful shove from behind. Once outside, however, they had nowhere to go. They could only jump from the narrow ridge not more than a few centimetres wide that ran around the building's façade and hoped that people on the street below would catch them. Or at least try to break their fall Luther who had taken the fireball full in the face rushed back to the bar grabbed Jean's hand and dragged her towards the window seemingly oblivious to the burnt blistering flesh that now covered his hands face neck arms and chest his primary focus was to get Jean out of the burning building and that window next to the bar counter overlooking Iberville Street the one with no bars on it the one leading out onto the fire escape. That was their only option. According to historian Johnny Townsend, author of Let the Faggots Burn, Buddy Rasmussen had previously served in the United States Air Force, and during his time there, he had been in the fire division. He had been trained for this. When the flames came through the door, he kept a cool head and got to work doing what needed to be done getting people the hell out of that building. Again, this was 1973. Fire codes back then were nowhere near what they are today. There were no requirements for clearly marked emergency exits, and the door leading out onto the roof behind the backdrop at the back of the stage was hardly ever used. That night, Buddy was one of the very few people in the upstairs lounge that even knew of its existence. But he got to work. As the room filled with smoke and flame, Buddy hurried the length of the bar, yelling for everybody to follow him. But the screams of terror and the roar of the fire drowned out his voice, and only the people in his immediate vicinity, those seated or standing right at the bar, heard him. He then leapt over the bar counter and grabbed the hands of two young men, regular Ricky Everett, who often performed in the upstairs lounges Nelly Dramas, and Ronnie Rosenthal. Ricky's friend, visiting from Atlanta, saying only three words to them. Come with me. As he made his way across the venue towards the theatre, the fire had started to lift the carpet from the floor, the lavish curtains and drapery were ablaze, and flames greedily devoured the flocked wallpaper. Every person Buddy encountered, he ordered to follow him. As he passed through the lounge area, he saw Mitch Mitchell, the associate pastor of the MCC, and yelled over the din that he needed to help lead people to the back of the theatre. Mitch did as he was told. Again, as with the exact number of people in the upstairs lounge, reports vary on this number too, but the general consensus is that Buddy guided between 20 and 30 people to the back of the venue, away from the bar, away from the fire. That's somewhere between half and a quarter of the people on the menu that night who owe their lives to Buddy Rasmussen. In the chaos, Ricky lost both Ronnie and Buddy in amongst the throngs of terrified people, all desperately trying to find a way out. But having performed on that stage many times, Ricky had an idea as to where Buddy was headed and stumbled on through the smoke. Buddy swung open the fire door leading into the theatre and rushed through making a beeline for the stage. As he went, he pushed the makeshift tables out of the way and tossed any chairs he could reach off to the sides of the room to clear a path for those following him. On reaching the back of the stage, he grabbed the backdrop, yanked down hard to dislodge the material from its fixings, and tossed it aside. Then he threw open the door, telling people to cross the rooftop and find a window into the next building. That was their way out. As he continued the evacuation, Pastor Mitch burst out onto the roof, calling for his partner, Horace Bouchard. He asked if Buddy had seen him come past, but Buddy hadn't. Mitch turned and rushed back into the building. At the same time, as Ricky Everett was approaching the exit and the faint glow of the lights shining in from Charter Street began to appear, he turned his head to see if Ronnie was behind him, but he wasn't. Panicked, Ricky turned and headed back towards the burning room. Mitch ran past him in the same direction. Buddy also ran back into the building to try and see if there were any other people struggling to find their way through the smoke. But when he reached the theatre's fire door and looked through, all he could see was a glowing orange haze. He knew it was too late. He just hoped that people had gotten out onto the fire escape or through the large windows that ran around the venue. To prevent the fire spreading any further, Buddy closed the fire door and the smoky room was plunged into darkness, the smoke too thick to allow any of the light from outside to penetrate much past the exterior door frame at the end of the room. The sudden absence of light disorientated Ricky for a moment and he realized that all hope of finding Ronnie was lost. He turned back in the direction he hoped he'd just come from and stumbled his way towards the door and safety. When Ricky stepped out onto the rooftop, coughing incessantly, there was only one person on the roof, a man he hadn't seen before, and this man helped him down into an apartment window so that he could make his escape. Back in the venue, Luther tried desperately, but unsuccessfully, to open the window above Iberville Street to gain access to the fire escape, which despite its purpose offered no way down onto the sidewalk. To get down, they would need to jump. Meanwhile, on the Charter Street side of the venue, Pastor Bill Larson was desperately trying to force an air conditioning unit out of one of the windows to open up a space for him and others to crawl through. Neither of them were having much success. Eventually, Luther grabbed Jean and shoved her right through the glass, breaking some of her teeth in the process, as she spat out their shattered remains onto the steel steps in the road below. Just then, Luther came tumbling through the window onto the metal landing, and yelled to Jean that he was on fire. She patted him down to douse the flames, and then Luther, critically injured, jumped down onto Iberville Street below. Jean called into the thick smoke, telling people to follow the sound of her voice, that an exit was now available to them, and she took a few steps up a fire escape to allow them to get past her, and jumped down to safety. When Ricky made it out onto Charter Street, he was met by a scene of utter pandemonium. Soot-covered people desperately calling out the names of their friends and lovers, trying to establish if they too had made it out safely. Suddenly, a voice behind him bellowed out the name, Adam! It was Buddy. He rushed off down Charter Street and around the corner to where the fire escape was, hoping to be reunited with his boyfriend. Then Ricky heard his own name being hollered and saw Ronnie rushing towards him. Somehow Ronnie had managed to get ahead of him inside the theatre, and had feared the worst, that Ricky hadn't made it out. The two men embraced, clinging to each other as tears cut white furrows into the black soot on their cheeks. Buddy reached the fire escape, still calling out Adam's name, just as Luther dropped down onto the sidewalk. Luther could tell that Buddy was barely holding it together as he asked if Luther had seen Adam. When Luther said that he hadn't, Buddy hurried off and searched the growing crowd of people who had managed to escape. Luther turned his attention back to the burning building, and his blood ran cold. When he looked up, he expected to see Gene on the stairs of the fire escape, but instead saw flames spewing from the broken window. The metal landing and step that Jean had been standing on were now engulfed. As his eyes followed the steep staircase that ran along the outside of the building between the two upper floors Luther didn't even register that he was holding his breath and then he heaved a sigh of relief but the relief was short-lived. While he had been distracted by Buddy the fire inside had surged towards the now broken window and the abundance of oxygen beyond. Standing a few steps up the fire escape Jean realised that she was in trouble. She was too high up the stairs to land safely, but the fire was on top of her. Her only option to flee the flames had been to run up, not jump down. Now, standing on the metal landing outside a window on the top floor, her one route of escape had been cut off. Going through the window back into the building was pointless, there was nowhere out that way. But flames were now billowing from the window directly below Jean. Even from down in the street, Luther could tell the intensity of the heat on his severely burned skin. But Jean was, effectively, being dangled over the flames like a sacrificial virgin in a cheesy 1950s adventure film, and the heat would have been unbearable. That was the moment that Luther realised he was about to watch his best friend burn alive. He moved to directly below Jean and called up to her saying that he would find a way to get her down, But the look on her face wasn't hopeful or grateful. It was a mix of fear and helplessness, both emotions that in that moment the two friends shared. What Luther didn't know, however, was that survivors and spectators on the Charter Street side of the building already had front row seats to that exact horror show. Pastor Bill Larson had finally succeeded in forcing the aircon unit out of the window but as the preacher had tried to jump through, the window pane above had fallen down across his shoulder blades, pinning him in the window frame. With his head, shoulder and one arm outside the window and the rest of him inside, all possible could do was scream, Oh God, no! as he was consumed by the flames. All people on the street could do was watch helplessly as he screamed. Beneath another window stood Buddy, hysterical. He was looking for his boyfriend and he had found him. Through the window nearest the piano, he saw Adam, who had been too drunk to even stand, still seated on the same bar stool, waving his arms in the air as fire raged all around him. About a block and a half away on Bourbon Street, Regina was making her way back to the upstairs lounge when she first heard the sound of a fire engine siren blasting. And instinctively, she knew something was wrong. She began to run, slipping on the brickwork sidewalk, almost falling as she rounded the corner onto Iberville Street. But just as she came in sight of the building, she was stopped, barred from continuing by a police officer. She demanded to be allowed to pass, explaining that she needed to get back up to the upstairs lounge, that her boyfriend was waiting for her. The cop refused. That ain't going to happen. That's the place that's on fire. Regina's world began to spin. She started calling out to people she knew from the bar, asking if anybody had seen Reggie. One man said that he may be on the Charter Street side because a whole bunch of people had gotten out that way. Regina raced off in the direction of Canal Street, desperate to find a way to get around the blockade. But between police, firefighters and medical personnel, they had the area well cordoned off tears began streaming down her face. She needed to get to Reggie. She needed to find Buddy and Adam. She needed to know that they were safe. But little did she know that that was practically the exact moment that Buddy would see Adam for the last time. As Buddy watched, helpless and in horror, a jet of water from a fire hose blasted through the window, knocking Adam from his stool. That summer evening in June was a warm one, and humid. It would have been the perfect party night, but chaos reigned in downtown New Orleans as ash rained down on the southwestern end of the French Quarter. The building fire, the third in New Orleans in just under seven months, and this one so close to bustling Bourbon and Canal Streets, attracted quite the crowd. Spectators gathered as the building was overwhelmed by the flames. A few even rushed to help complete strangers running towards, not away from, the fire. Howard Bartholomew was driving home with his kids when he spotted the blaze. He stopped and leapt out of the car, rushing to help, but there was nothing he could do. There was no way in that he could see, and no way to get the people inside out. The memory of that night has never left him. In the 2013 documentary The Upstairs Lounge Fire, he told filmmaker Roy Anderson, quote, people were at the window cooking. That's the only way to describe it. Pieces of flesh literally landing on the sidewalk below in a scene so terrible. I don't want to talk about it anymore. End quote. The central fire station in Decatur Street is located literally 200 meters away from the corner of Iberville and Charter Streets, as the crow flies. Even by road, It's only 500 metres. First right into Bienville. Third left into Royal. First left into Iberville. Two blocks down, and you're there. And that's on today's street layout. I have no idea if all the one-ways were in effect back in 1973. But as close as the fire was, getting a massive fire engine to the scene came with a whole host of challenges, not least of which was the fact that this was New Orleans. On an early Sunday evening, at the height of summer, with a building on fire and attracting a crowd. (laughs) Yeah, good luck with that. Rookie firefighter 22-year-old Terry Gilbert had been on the job for just two weeks when the call came into the station that a bar in the French Quarter was on fire, and he and his crew sprang into action, kitting up and jumping onto engine 29, with 32-year-old Arthur Lambert behind the wheel. Traffic proved a mess, with cars and out-on-the-town partiers clogging up the streets. At one point, Arthur pulled up onto the sidewalk to get around a jam and shunted a taxi into the glass window or a furniture store. Arthur stopped the fire truck and the deputy chief seated behind him said, Don't worry about the fucking taxi cab, get to that fire. Engine 29 was the first in the scene and it took first responders, some of them hardened firefighters, a moment to fully comprehend what they were seeing. Terry had just returned from a tour in Vietnam and thought he had probably seen it all but the sights, the sounds and worst of all, the smell shook him. Later, Arthur Lambert would describe the scene by saying quote, flames shot from the building like blow torches into the night. Men could be seen struggling hopelessly against the security bars on windows escape impossible. People on the street screamed for help. A sickening smell hung in the air. End quote. Terry Gilbert's recollection of the night was far grislier. Quote, It was horrible. These people, they were literally roasted alive. When your skin is exposed to open flames, you just melt, like candle wax. It's horrific. I don't think anything could have prepared you for something like that. No one deserves to die like that. End quote. More fire crews arrived, fire engines filling the street on both sides, and they quickly got the blaze under control. In total, from the time the buzzer sounded to the time firefighters managed to extinguish the fire, just 16 minutes had passed. 756 to 812. A mere 16 minutes, but when emergency services personnel were finally able to enter the building, they were reminded just how crucial every second was when putting out a fire. In amongst the charred remains of furniture and fixtures, lay the equally charred remains of 28 people. 17 were found at the windows overlooking the corner of Iberville and Charter streets, where they clamoured to get out between the narrow gaps in the safety bars. Six bodies were found by the piano, four bodies were found in the bathroom, and one was discovered just inside the window leading out onto the fire escape. That should give you an idea of how quickly the fire gutted the upstairs lounge, how quickly those inside were overcome by the smoke and the heat, and how quickly the fire escape became inaccessible as a way out. Of the bodies discovered by the piano, two were found lying on top of each other in a final embrace. These would later be identified as those of Pastor Mitch Mitchell and his partner, Horace Prashad. Mitch had made it out, but couldn't leave Horace behind, and they died in each other's arms. Another person who made it out was Buddy Machi, but he had run back in to try and lead more people to the stage door. His body was also discovered near the piano, with his arms around two other people. They died holding each other in terror, knowing that they were about to die in the most gruesome of ways. As for Pastor Bill Larson, his body was left in the window, uncovered in full view of everybody out on the street for hours while the FBI conducted their investigation. Another body was visible from the street. The unnamed man had tried exiting the window backwards when the fire had overwhelmed him, and he had died, hunched down, almost in the fetal position, with one foot outside the window. All that remained was his one brown leather shoe with a gold buckle. Outside, on the street, another body lay on the sidewalk. He had managed to escape the burning building, but he didn't survive the fall, bringing the total death toll to 29. Luther Boggs and other injured survivors were being attended to by medics. Jean Gosnell was rescued by a fire crew using the ladder on their fire engine, and although seriously injured she had survived her ordeal. Pictures of Luther would appear in print over the coming days, with loose, burned flesh seen hanging from his hands. Other pictures and videos from that night would emerge, including photos of Pastor Bill's burnt corpse protruding from the window above Charter Street, as well as civilians wheeling the injured past the cameras on gurneys. Regina was still trying to get through the blockade when she heard that they were taking the injured to Charity Hospital two kilometres away. She clung to hope like flotsam in a storm and decided that taking a cab to the hospital in the hopes that Reggie was there would be her best bet. At least you'd be able to ask after him more easily, though. In total, 15 people were transferred to Charity Hospital, where they were treated for second and third degree burns and smoke inhalation. Not all of them would leave. On arriving at the hospital, Regina started running up and down the halls of the ER, asking anybody she recognised and anybody in a uniform if they had seen Reggie. Nobody had. Eventually, a fireman asked where Reggie had been sitting and she told him that they'd all been by the piano when she left there. From the look in his eyes, when he heard that, she knew what he was going to say, before he even said it. I'm sorry, nobody at the piano made it out. But nothing could have prepared her for what he said next. I don't know if they'll be able to identify any of the bodies from there. In Los Angeles, the telephone rang, and a man answered. The man was Reverend Troy Perry, the founder of the Metropolitan Community Church Well, let Reverend Perry tell you himself. And he said, there's been a bad, bad fire in New Orleans. And I said, well, was anybody hurt? And he said, Troy, he said, there are dozens of people dead. Reverend Perry immediately started making plans to get a delegation down to Louisiana. Back in New Orleans, the FBI eventually allowed firefighters to start cleanup operations. And as Arthur Lambert surveyed the scene, the chief appeared next to him and said, in a quiet but earnest voice, I'm not going to tell anybody that they have to do this, but there ain't none of us leaving until it's all done. According to Arthur, most of the men pitched in just to get the task completed. There are photos all over the internet of the people who died in the upstairs lounge being taken out through the fire escape and lowered to street level using the basket at the end of a fire truck's ladder where Red Cross and civilian volunteers help get them into the coronavans but with the bodies already zipped up in black body bags, it doesn't really convey the true gruesomeness of the task. In interviews for documentaries made over the years, some of the firefighters who were on the scene that night revealed that due to the heat, some of the bones were fused together and most of the victims were only identifiable through dental records. Three weren't identified at all. At a nearby movie theatre, two boys had been watching a movie. They had been dropped off earlier in the evening by their father, Pastor Mitch Mitchell. This was not unusual. Despite the impression that gritty action films of the era tried to convey, it was still safe enough for an 11-year-old boy named Dwayne and his 8-year-old brother, Steve, to go see a movie unaccompanied. Earlier in the day, Mitch had told the boys that he and Horace had a meeting to attend after church and if they wanted, he would drop them off at the movie house. Mitch didn't feel it necessary to go into detail about his plans with the boys, but perhaps he should have. They would have known that their father was involved in the upcoming MCC fundraiser to be held at the Upstairs Lounge the following week in aid of the Crippled Children's Hospital, and as was tradition after the service, the meeting was happening at the Upstairs Lounge. The kids settled on Disney's The World's Greatest Athlete, a comedy starring Jan Michael Vincent in one of his earlier films, long before his most well-known role, that of Stringfellow Hawk and Airwolf, would make him a household name. Although the film had been released several months before, the town in northeast Alabama, where the boys were from, wasn't exactly a bustling metropolis, so there was no cinema there, making this quite a treat for the boys. Like I said, it wasn't unusual for Duane and Steve to get dropped off somewhere while their father was busy doing whatever their father did, wherever their father did it. What was unusual was that Mitch never came to pick them up. The manager of the movie house, not knowing what to do with the kids and not having anyone to call, told the projectionist just to replay the movie. Which they did. And again. And again. Twain would say in interviews years later that they watched the movie seven times, but that's unlikely. The maths doesn't quite work. But I'm not going to hold the traumatised memory of an eleven-year-old boy against his adult self. Eventually, Mitch's landlady came to fetch the boys, but not a word was said about where Mitch and Horace might be. Nothing was said the following morning either. Still, nothing was said when a neighbor came to fetch the boys and take them to the airport. And again, nothing was said when they got back home to Alabama. In fact, it would be an entire week before their mother would sit them down to explain that their daddy and his friend had died. This isn't actually a criticism. As Diane Anderson Mitchell wrote in an article published on the Africa's website on the 40th anniversary of the fire in 2013, how do you tell an 11-year-old that his father was burnt alive, his body wrapped around his boyfriend, and the two men charred and clinging to each other, lovers in life and death, while trying to escape the worst mass killing of gays in American history? Okay, so let's lift that graphic content warning here and put a pin in this story for now. I'd hope to wrap this up in a two-parter, but like I said at the start, there is still much to unpack. Just a heads up for next time though, when I return with the conclusion of the arson of the upstairs lounge, despite lifting the graphic content warning, I'll have a different kind of warning for you. Describing the horrors seen that night may be over, but this is where shit really starts getting disgusting. So if you're prone to phone throwing, you may want to put your device somewhere out of reach. Lastly, before I go, I want to throw out a reminder that if you haven't already, please do join me on the ACMQ Discord server. There's a link in the show notes. As I've mentioned before, I'm no longer on Facebook, so any messages or posts there, I don't see. I may get people letting me know from time to time via WhatsApp or Discord that there is activity, but I cannot begin to describe the improvement to my mental health since stepping away from social media and I won't be going back. Hence, Discord is the place to be. That is where we take deeper dives into the cases we cover and you can also join me in live streams and take part in our competitions and giveaways. We also have channels where you can listen to the full ACMQ episode library and my patrons get access to transcripts of the episodes. So, until next time, keep well, stay safe, and see you on the server.